HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. This is Meant to be Eaten, a Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell, and my co-host for today is Janita Vandick. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our new issue, Volume 21.2, features articles on topics that include commensality and creative collaboration, the politics of food systems, and race and representation. For the next several weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors. We have several guests joining us today as we launch a new feature on this Meant to be Eaten Meets Gastronomica series. What to Read Now is dedicated to new books and food. We will shortly welcome the authors of Just the Tonic and Natural History of Tonic Water, Kim Walker and Mark Nesbitt, to learn more about their book. Gastronomica recently featured this book in our review section in our spring 2021 issue. First, I'd like to briefly introduce my colleague, Janita, who is a PhD student in anthropology at the University of Toronto, to share some of the new titles we've been seeing come through over at Gastronomica. Thanks for joining us to help launch What to Read Now, Janita. Hi, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm excited to share what I've been looking forward to reading and watching this month. And if listeners are interested in where to purchase these books, we'll have all that information available at the end of the episode and on the Gastronomica Twitter page. Janita, we've been chatting about some of the new books in food studies that we're excited about. Which titles are on your list? Well, the first on my list is actually a film, Honeyland, which came out in 2019. The film is directed by Lyubo Stefanov and Tamara Natevska, and it features the life of a North Macedonian woman who is trying to keep her wild beekeeping tradition alive. I think this film will be a great option for people who are interested in learning more about environmental and ecological change, but maybe looking for a more grounded and intimate narrative. As for books, one that is due for release later this month is The Fishmeal Revolution by Kristen Winterstein. Listeners and readers of this podcast may already be familiar with how important industrial produced corn and soy are for creating calorically dense animal feed. And these are products which are integral for maintaining the global industrial supply of meat. Winterstein offers another important component of animal feed, which is new to me, and that is fish meal. 
I'm really excited to read about the history of this animal protein and how its popularity created many different effects on environments, science, and policy along the Peru-Chile coast. Thanks, Janita. I'm really looking forward to this one as well. The role of meat in sustainable food systems is one of the most popular topics in new books in food right now. And there are so many new important titles coming out that look at animal agriculture from many different perspectives. I'm excited about the fish meal revolution because it frames the conversation on sustainability as part of a global system and one that connects the meat on our plates to the fish in the sea by turning an eye towards the industrialization of animal feed. Other new books on my list, Michael Tweedy's new book on rice, Rice, a Savor the South Cookbook, which is a culinary history with more than 50 recipes, just released in March. And another title, which is coming out only in the next week or so, called Brewing a Boycott by Alison Brantley. That's a great title, right? This is for readers out there who may be interested in the successes and trials of consumer-led boycotts. Brantley in particular describes how the ubiquitous Coors Brewing Company became the subject of one of the longest boycott campaigns in U.S. history. Yeah, this one is so interesting. It's a book about the history um, of a famous Rockies brewery, Coors, uh, but one is focused on labor history from its bottling lines to its beer delivery networks and well beyond. It's a fascinating study based on archival research and oral histories. And this social history of beer leads us to another bubbly beverage in the archives. And it is my pleasure today to introduce the authors of Just the Tonic, A Natural History of Tonic Water. Kim Walker is a herbalist, foraging teacher, and PhD student at Royal Holloway, University of London, and Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. Mark Nesbitt is a senior research leader at Kew and the curator of the Economic Botany Collection. His work spans botany and history, focusing on the repurposing of historic colonial collections to address contemporary issues. Thank you, Kim and Mark, for joining us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Turkey. Kim and Mark, perhaps a first question before we dive into your book. What are you reading, Kim, these days? What new book in food are you excited about reading soon? At the moment, I'm really excited about um, Braiding Sweetgrass uh, by Robin Wall Kimmerer, actually. I read it last year and I've just picked it up again to reread it because it's just such a beautiful book about looking at science and plants in a different perspective. Terrific. Thanks, Kim. What about you, Mark? I'm reading Green Unpleasant Lands by Corinne Fowler, a professor of English literature uh, at Leicester University. And it's a uh, that's an exploration of the, the hidden history behind that, that great glory of England, you know, the country house and the, the country estate and that sense of the rural landscape that of course is so often was so often underpinned by you know, money from uh, sugar and uh, enslaved people in the Caribbean. Uh, and it, it delves pretty widely into the role of plants in this toxic combination of, of empire and trade that, that fueled so much country house uh, building in Britain. Mm, fascinating. And, you know, that, that brings us really uh, nicely to your own book, Just the Tonic, A Natural History of Tonic Water, which is uh, based on the Q archives. Can you each briefly tell listeners what you do and how you came to write this story? Well, so my my involvement 
with Cinchona and Quinine and this story perhaps goes goes back a little bit uh, further into the past than Kim's. So I'll, I'll start. So in 2002, I got a grant to, to re-examine the around about 1,000 bark specimens of Cinchona that we have at Q. And I realised that you know, previous cataloguing attempts had mixed lots of things together. And we teased them apart. And I could see there that there was a, a bigger story, a story about medicine, about empire, about trade, about plantations, but needed further investigation. And I put it onto the back boiler with so many other ideas and projects, uh, waiting for the right person to to come along. And that person was, three years ago or so, uh, Kim. Kim, do you want to say about how you came into this world of Sanchona? So I was really interested. I came to Q to do a and a, uh, a placement on helping them reorganize their herbarium specimens to a new name, uh, to the new names. And while I was there, I met Mark and he was just so brilliant. And they had, and I just found the collection that Mark works in, the economic botany collection was absolutely full of medicinal plants. And my history before that was working in foraging and herbal medicine. And I just thought, wow, what a treasure trove. And in within that collection was this la- uh, large collection of Cintrona bark specimens and Mark highlighted how important it was and how fascinating the history was. And so this is very much a global story, um, a global history. Can you, for re, uh, listeners who are not familiar with the terms, can you give us a little bit of a, uh, an overview of, of what chinchona is and how that's related to quinine and tonic water? So cinchona trees grow in, in the cloud forest on the eastern slopes of the Andes at pretty high altitudes, you know, a thousand metres or three to four thousand yards uh, up. Uh, and in order to keep predators uh, away from, from them, the bark is very rich in, in alkaloids. So alkaloids, these are chemicals that, like caffeine, uh, quinine, morphine, uh, that, that clears the ending I-N-E, tells you it's an alkaloid, but very bitter, they're very poisonous because they'll, they'll poison humans if we consume too much. Uh, so quinine is there in, in the bark of cinchona trees, protect them from, from predators. Could you say a little bit more then about the book and the main purpose? It's a book about the history of tonic water. And is it a book about food or medicine or both? And I'm wondering if you can answer that, Mark, in connection with the point you just made about the alkaloids. So if you think of quinine as an alkaloid, so in, in that same class as, as, as caffeine or, or morphine, the really fascinating thing about alkaloids is that they have these unexpected effects in, in the human body that you know, are different to the effects they have in, in the plant. Uh, they can give us pleasure. They can um, uh, uh, often have medicinal purposes, as in the case of quinine. Uh, and quinine is, is exactly one of those chemicals that's got these dual roles, but it's what gives you that tart, astringent flavour in, in tonic water and in a whole range of, of tonic wines uh, as well. Uh, and at the same time, for about 300 years or so, from the mid-17th century up to the 1930s, it was the only effective treatment known in the West uh, against ma- uh, malaria. But because uh, it, you know, it's a really bitter substance and you need to find ways to uh, make it palatable, that dividing line between medicine and pleasure, uh, uh, food and, and medicine was, was often, uh, often blurred. 
Okay. And you, you've referenced taste then and the taste sensation of, of the quinine. Can you say a little bit then about your experience in studying taste in the archives? Um, how does one how does one do do that uh, study a taste sensation um, that's ephemeral um, in the archives based on the material culture of Q's collection? Well, it was a good excuse for making lots of um, experiments, I suppose, with uh, drinking tonic water and a little bit of gin, perhaps, while we were writing the book. Um, but yes, it's an interesting thing about how in-depth you get with your research. And one of the things that we did as part of this was to create a selection of um, cocktails based in on historical recipes of quinine. Um, and one of the older recipes for using quinine, which of course is the antimalarial bark, was a 17th century recipe using rose petals and parsley and aniseed and opium, but I recreated the recipe without using the opium and I thought it was a nice way to, to get a handle on the history by recreating some of these historic things. So I'll just add to that, but the kind of practical experimentation has been a really important part of the work and one of the nice surprises for me when I go in, into the uh, office at Kew is that Kim will very often have uh, a jar of um, you know, uh, quinine uh, and various other substances uh, <laughs> ready for me to taste. Oh, can you take us through that process of recipe development a little bit more, Kim? Sure. Um, well, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, I think when you're looking at historic recipes, the first thing to think about is how safe it will be. Um, is there any known toxicity? So I'm not recommending everybody goes out and makes a recipe from a from an old herbal or a doctor's book, um, especially with quinine um, or cinchona bark, because it does have some issues with toxicity. But I have can work out the. Uh, I can work out the quinine, potential quinine content, and so I'm able to dose appropriately without over <laughs> overdosing. But yeah, I, I look at some of the books and I just think, wow, does that sound tasty? And <laughs> do I want to make it? Or um, and if not, I don't. And if I do, I'll, I'll give it a go. And if it works, to, if it works, if it looks like it'll work quite well in a cocktail and it can be made safely, then I will, I'll have a go. And you've referenced cocktails then gin and tonics and the latter half of your book looks at the gin and tonic i'm wondering if you can share with us that process that transition from where quinine transformed from a medicine to a soda water can you walk us through that history a little bit so quinine and cinchona bark were originally developed as anti-malarials but over the 19th century as um as use of the medicine developed from uh, as people started to use it more, it became more well known as a tonic medicine. Uh, and so used for broader, broader use in within medicine for like toning the body and uh, strengthening people that are suffering from debility or digestive disorders. And so quinine ended up getting classified and syntrona got classified as tonics. And it was the addition of, well, it was taking two medicinal things. One is soda water, which was considered a medicinal drink, which was refreshing and helpful to the body, and adding quinine, which kind of gave it the double bubble, the um, the double kind of tonic, and that's why it 
got called tonic water because it was more for this property of helping digestion. Okay, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten with Jacqueline Rowell talking with Kim Walker and Mark Nesbitt about their book, Just the Tonic, A Natural History of Tonic Water, recently reviewed in Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Now, Kim and Mark, while doing research and writing for this book and digging into these this collection, these boxes that Mark had mentioned earlier, what was the biggest surprise that you found in the course of your work on it? I think uh, for for me the the biggest surprise was the reputation that cinchona bark and then later quinine got as as a cure all, which of course we we think is an important part of the you know the, the tonic water story the idea that this would be not only a refreshing drink but a drink that was good for you not as an anti mineral but you know, as as a tonic as a booster for the body, and I was reading about uh, the the race to track down uh, quinine unused quinine in pharmacies in North America in the Second World War when supplies in the Far East dried up and huge quantities were found in pharmacies in, in the northeastern United States where malaria disappeared around about 200 years ago. And that quinine was not in pharmacies uh, as an anti-malarial. It was there for all of its other supposed uh, medicinal properties. So, you know, uh, cinchona and quinine really did get a, a big reputation as a cure-all because they were so obviously effective, certainly in treating one major illness. Kim, what was your biggest surprise in the archives? I think my biggest surprise was about the use of quinine as a medicine, whether it was malarial or for other reasons, such as tonics, was that gin rarely appears in its early history. And in fact, it was things like wine rum, whiskey, or whatever spirits people could find that it was mixed with. And I was kind of expecting gin to appear sometimes at least, but actually it's much rarer than you would expect. Fascinating. And when did gin appear then as a complementary adjunct to tonic? At what point in the story? Okay, so... Many of the legends about the gin and tonic are that from the early 19th century, 
people were adding quinine crystals to gin to take their medicine. But what we actually found was a far more complicated story of which there are many, many threads that thread into it. But if we're looking at the uh, definitive evidence that the gin and tonic appears, it's from the 1868 Oriental Sporting Times where people are set at a, a horse race saying, you know, enjoying themselves, calling for cigars, calling for gin and tonics. And this is actually very shortly after tonic water itself is invented. And it's very clearly it's gin with tonic water rather than quinine crystals. So it's around this kind of mid 19th century, well, like late 1850s to late 1860s, around the time that tonic water itself is invented before it gets put into the cocktail. So far that we know. And your book concludes with several recipes from a grog and tonic made with rum, as you had mentioned earlier, to the orangey, and that one's made with triple sec, to mocktails. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the choice to include recipes in this book and, and maybe speak to a little bit about the format for the book um, that you that you wrote in it's um, it's a beautiful text and there's over a hundred images drawn from the Q's archives. So can you tell us a little bit about how you chose um, the different components and uh, chose to end with the recipes? So Kim is the cocktail expert, so I let her speak about that. But I can talk a little bit about the, the format of the book. And we did really spend as much time searching for and, and choosing the images uh, as we did with the text. So the two are, are very carefully chosen to, to complement each other. Uh, and we're immensely grateful to the many you know, archives uh, and museums who have started to make images freely available for publication. It makes a, a huge difference to work like this. So we've ranged broadly to the Library of Congress, to uh, libraries in the Midwestern United States, uh, to the Welcome Collection. Um, and, and I think, uh, and also purchases of images on eBay as well, a really excellent way of, uh, for example, tackling some of the 19th century uh, periodical uh, literature. We've also taken the opportunity to actually put snapshots of some of his very, very early textual references, very quite hard to find. Uh, into the book. Kim, do you have anything to add to Mark's uh, reply on the format of the book and the recipes? And how did you select those specific recipes and how did you choose to feature uh, them within that format with, with the color illustrations you know, throughout? Well, one of the first things I did was sit down and have a look at the wealth of images that were available um, and found so much from the Welcome Collection here in London. And I think that was just part of the fun bit was to see what was there and how we could build the story with them. Because to me, a book really is enhanced with pictures and it also makes it a bit more accessible. You know, um, people might pick it up where they wouldn't necessarily read a dense text, but they might be interested in reading the photos, uh, the, the images and the pictures. In a, in a sense. And then the other thing you've asked about is the cocktail development. Well, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a kind of open secret that I like gin, but it's not my go to drink. I'm a bit of a wine girl. And I saw that the early recipes included uh, cinchona bark in wine was one of the ways it was originally given for fevers and malaria. I thought, well, let's let's put tonic water in wine and see what happens. And it works really well. 
and I really enjoy that, especially in the summer. It's very refreshing. And from there, I saw the other recipes of, for using quinine crystals in rum and whiskey. I thought, well, let's try it with those as well. And actually, rum tonics and whiskey tonics are a known thing. And it just it just went from there, really. I just started adding tonic into everything. What is your favorite tonic beverage? Mm, I do think it has to be the wine because I would quite like to have a less alcoholic drink in the evenings. Um, and so, though I like the taste of wine, it's nice to f have it chilled, especially on hot summer's day, a chilled wine, 50-50 with chilled tonic. And also I'd like to say that tonic water is really nice on its own as well for a mocktail for anybody that doesn't drink. And I recently visited Poland and it's very popular as, a, as just a, a soda drink over there too. So definitely recommend wine and tonic and I would definitely recommend just trying it on its own with fruits and herbs and anything you'd like to mix with it. Thank you. Mark, what about you? Which, what is your favourite tonic beverage? On a hot summer's evening, there is nothing to beat the, the classic gin and tonic. And I think uh, as you taste the taste of quinine and you smell the aroma of, of juniper and the other aromatics in there, there's, there's such a sense that, you know, the, 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 <laughs> well, the history of the world really is contained in that glass. But I'll also add that um, you know, working on, on this book has brought me to drinking tonic water straight, just a bit of citrus peel and ice, you know, as Kim mentioned, as it's drunk on the continent. But it, I think that's an overlooked uh, drink um, you know, in, in, on both sides of the Atlantic and we could, we could learn from, from Europe uh, uh, the, the benefits of drinking straight tonic. Absolutely. And you've both referenced the increasing popularity of tonic water in recent years. And we've seen many new artisanal tonic waters rolled out do you have any speculations on what has propelled this resurgence? Uh, I, I'm really struck by the, the historical uh, uh, parallel here. It's a parallel and a difference to the arrival of a gin and tonic as a sort of very exotic British thing into North America uh, after the Second World War, so in the early 1950s, where it actually followed tonic water. Uh, I know, uh, companies such as uh, Sweeps were promoting tonic water, and they realised that a way to get people to drink more tonic water was to get people to drink more gin and tonics. So tonic water came first, uh, and then gin. But I think, Kim, uh, the, the modern story of tonic water is the other way around, it, isn't it? But there was a great revival in artisanal gin, and artisanal tonic water has followed. Yes, um, as these gins with all these different flavours came out, it's, it seemed to make sense to people that you also needed a variety of different tonics with various flavours, like you can get all sorts of flavours now, like elderflower tonic or citrus tonic, and to be able to allow people much more flexibility in their flavours as they're making the gin and tonic be a bit more adventurous. So we are coming towards the end of the hour. I have a couple of final questions for you um, and want to thank you for joining us. I'm wondering, looking forward, now that this project has wrapped up, what are you working on at the archives and what new collections are you looking forward to digging into? <laughs> 
Uh, so I have just started a, a project working with colleagues uh, in, in India, uh, examining some of our historic Indian Matura Medica, Indian drugs uh, at Kew. Uh, and of course, there's an overlap with the St. Jonah story here and the transplantation of St. Jonah trees uh, to India uh, by the British, but that wasn't until the uh, 1860s. Uh, so long before that, the East India Company had been obviously highly interested in uh, Indian medicine. Uh, built up a very fine collection, much of which is now at Kew. And so what we're doing is bringing the expertise of Indian botanists and Indian scientists to re-examine these old colonial collections. Thank you, Mark and Kim. What's your next project at the Kew? Well, for me, um, the unfortunately, the Just tonic doesn't count towards my final PhD thesis, very sadly. So I've got to catch up and I really have to knuckle down and finish off in the next year, hopefully. Terrific. Well, thank you, Kim and Mark, for joining us today. Listeners can find Just the Tonic through Q Publishing and in the United States through the University of Chicago Press. And in addition, the books that we talked about today at the beginning of the episode are... The Fishmeal Revolution by Kristen Winterstein, which is available through the University of California Press, Brewing a Boycott by Ashley Brantley, available through the University of North Carolina Press, and Rice, a Savor the South Cookbook by Michael Twitty, also available through the University of North Carolina Press. Thanks, Janita, for joining. Join us next week as we talk to Eric Funabashi on The Japanese Immigrant's Pantry which is published in the new edition of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, Volume 21.2. For more details, visit gastronomica.org.